0: destination eat drink is up next but first listen to this great other show on the radio misfits podcast network (coughs) a lot of anchors do that
1: (coughs) are you ready oh boy okay here we go three two one hi i'm howard sudbury and i'm steve baskerville let's do it again what that was good okay you ready yeah Hi, I'm Howard Sudbury. And I'm Steve
0: Baskerville. Back to you on the Radio Misfits podcast network. Great talk radio isn't dead. It just moved to a better place. Radiomisfits.com. I need an agent. A delicious purple corn beer, ceviche, and pisco sours. This week, we're in the culinary capital of South America, Lima, Peru. Traveling the world to bring you delicious dishes, tasty beverages, and interesting experiences. This is the Destination Eat Drink Podcast on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson, host of Destination Eat Drink, the travel podcast for foodies. Each week, we visit a different foodie destination and sample the food and drink and cool things to do there. This week, it's the culinary capital of South America, Lima, Peru. Lima was once a quick stopover for tourists making their way to Machu Picchu but not anymore. Today Lima boasts a bounty for foodies with everything from world-renowned high-end restaurants to tasty and inexpensive hole-in-the-wall spots. And we'll talk to Lima culinary food guide Samantha Lewis about her adopted hometown and some of the best places to visit Lima in just a moment. But first, Let me remind you to subscribe to Destination Eat Drink wherever you get podcasts, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, or you can go to radiomisfits.com. There's also destinationeatdrink.com. Just click on the podcast tab. We've got them all listed there, too. Samantha Lewis is an American expat from Kansas City living in Lima, Peru. She and her husband operate the Lima Gourmet Company, an outfit that offers food tours and cooking classes in the culinary capital of South America. Destination, eat, drink. Samantha, you're originally from Kansas City. How did you wind up in... Lima Peru
1: that's right I made it a long way from home Um, I am from Kansas City I actually studied abroad in Spain when I was 16 and fell in love with it went back did my undergrad there and that is where I met my husband who's Peruvian Um, we were working together uh, working in media and kind of traveling around for the job uh, before we decided to come back uh, to Peru, and so we came back about nine years ago, and that is how I ended up in Lima.
0: My mom grew up in Kansas City, Kansas City, Kansas. Her whole family's from Kansas yeah. City, Kansas. They all went to wow. they all went to Shawnee Mission east west whatever um yes <laughs> back in the day and of wow. course i still have family there do you get back to kansas city at all and if you do what are some of your favorite places to go there
1: i actually just came back from kansas city two days ago okay uh we usually yeah so it's lovely we go every year we have a couple small kids so we have to get in all the family time all of my family's still in kansas city so we go back, and I spend a lot of time actually out with my cousins, just kind of discovering new parts of the city. It's a city that has had a, 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 almost a revival over the last 10 years, and they are just focusing on different areas of the city, and you'll find these new gastro pubs opening up, a lot of chefs doing really cool, innovative things, um, so... We spent a lot of time in the Crossroads District, uh, which has different shops kind of opening up and, again, different restaurants. There's a nice restaurant called Extra Virgin, which is right in that area. Okay. Another restaurant, Affair, so they uh, focus on German cuisine, and they have an excellent brunch menu on the weekends. So those are a couple of my favorite and. Obviously, from Kansas City, you can't miss the barbecue. I was
0: going to ask you your favorite barbecue place in Kansas City.
1: <laughs> Actually, that's a, this is kind of a funny question. So, you know, you have your typical Jack Stack. You have a lot of the big one. The, used to be Can- Oklahoma Joe's, right? So that's kind of changed and transformed. But I like to go about 45 minutes outside of the city to the north To a little town called Richmond, which my grandparents live in, and they have this really small restaurant that's only open on Thursdays, Fridays and Saturdays through the weekend. And it's called Oink and Moo, and they do incredible ribs. So we make the trot out there every time we're in town, and it does not fail to this point. Or it doesn't. No, it doesn't disappoint. (laughs) You're in Lima, Peru
0: um, with your company the Lima Gourmet Company operates all these tours in Lima. If someone was coming to Lima and they'd never been there, how would you describe Lima to an outsider who had no experience with it?
1: Yeah, Lima is quite a unique metropolis in a sense because it just has a combination of so many different influences that have been present throughout the generations as the city has developed. So it's a bustling city of over 10 million people Going through 43 different districts that kind of comprise the city, each district has its own local flavor. So you'll find differences in the architecture, in the urban planning, in the landscaping, even in kind of the customs that surround these different districts. So you have Barranco, for example, which is kind of the bohemian, romantic side of the city. You find some of the um, post-colonial architecture here. It's a little bit more traditional. You'll find some cobblestone streets still, which are kind of unusual to find around uh, the city. And then you can go to... Another side, say San Isidro, where you'll find the financial center, so it's a little bit more built up. You'll have these residential areas. It's a, it's a more groomed kind of experience. If you head down to the center of Lima, you'll find these vestiges of colonialism, these gorgeous buildings, these narrow streets. Uh, so you can find so many different corners of the city that just represent different historical periods that the city and the country have been through that also translates into the food. So you can find different restaurants and different styles of restaurants throughout these different districts, kind of depending on what you're you're looking on. So my recommendation is, you know, it, it can seem overwhelming a little bit. It's kind of this bustling city with a lot going on, and it seems kind of chaotic from certain perspectives, but it's an organized chaos that provides for a lot of flavor, a lot of color, a lot of sounds. There's so much going on. Um, it's very impacting in a sensorial way, but I would encourage people to get out and explore because the city really has so many different facets to offer that kind of cater to different tastes. So that, that would be kind of my recommendation is to get out and, and explore. Don't be overwhelmed. Just attack it. Sam, you mentioned
0: that there were all these outside influences. And of course, we know the Spanish uh, colonized South America, but one thing that I found really interesting was the large Chinese population in Lima. And I guess I shouldn't have been surprised. It's a Pacific Coast country, Peru. So mm-hmm. it's not too surprising that you would have a Chinese population. But talk about the Chinese influence on Lima. Is there a Chinatown that we can visit in Lima? And what might be some of the dishes that we might have?
1: So, Peru, and especially in its cuisine, but again, you can see it in different sectors and in the country, is a country of And one of those, like you very astutely mentioned, was the Chinese influence. So after the abolition of slavery, um, you had many Chinese workers coming to Peru to kind of fulfill that void. So they would work um, primarily in agriculture. And as they continued to work, they were salaried workers. They began to grow socioeconomically, have more acquisition power there. And so really forms communities and pockets all throughout the country. One of the things that they brought with them is our different cooking techniques and different cooking styles. The wok was introduced by the Chinese. So what they couldn't get, though, being in Peru, would be ingredients that they were used to back in China. So this is where this fusion starts to be born. You have these Chinese cooking techniques and traditional dishes, but using Peruvian ingredients. So that's what you'll mainly find. You have restaurants. The restaurants here in Peru with the Chinese influence are called chifa. So um, some of the dishes that you'll find, there is a Chinatown. It is close to the center of Lima. There is a main boulevard and a couple surrounding streets. It's kind of a reduced section of town, but it's right off of really close to the main plaza, which is the Plaza de Armas. And some typical dishes that you could find there would be chaufa. So your arroz chaufa, which would be your kind of uh, stir-fried rice. It comes from chaufan, so fried rice. And so one of the things that makes it a little bit different here is that it has a bit of a smokier flavor, cooked over high heat, You'll also have another dish that has become one of the flagship dishes in Peru called lomo saltado. So this would be a Chinese-Peruvian fusion as well that is just mind-blowing. So you take this really nice, finely cut sirloin steak, and you're going to cook it again in a wok over high heat, and you will cook it with a type of chili pepper called the yellow chili pepper, some tomato, some onions, parsley, and a little bit of soy sauce. These are on some potatoes as well, so your fries, essentially. You um, cook it in the wok, and then it's served with rice and a little bit of uh, corn as well, generally in the rice. So this is kind of a star dish that just packs a punch in terms of flavor. And this is also going to be an influence from the Chinese, and and you'll find different variations of this dish, the lomo saltado, like in the tallarín saltado, which is going to be instead of a rice base, they're going to use it with noodles, so more of a pasta base there. But again, with the same kind of smoky flavors, sirloin steak, the chili pepper. So it's it's quite fragrant as well. You have the, the parsley that's introduced in the dish. So it uh, combines a lot of different influences just in, in one dish.
0: The peppers that you mentioned, would we be getting hot peppers in typical Lima cuisine or is it sweet peppers?
1: So brilliant. So there are over 400 varieties of chili pepper in Peru. And out of all of these different dishes we have, and this is largely thanks to the fusion. So you have the japanese peruvian fusion, which is Nike, You have Chifa that we've already talked about. You have the Creole fusion that came with the Spanish and through the slave trade, really the African influence that we see here, in addition to the Spanish and Italian. So out of all these dishes, there are over 300 national dishes that are recognized in Peru. 70% of them use some kind of chili pepper. However... The dishes are not particularly spicy. Peruvian cuisine is really all about balance and finding that point of equilibrium between the dishes, not only in terms of taste but also in, in the whole experience. the texture of the food, the aroma, there's this saying that it has to enter through your eyes, the dish first. it has to be you know visually pleasing. And so with the chili peppers it really just adds uh, another dimension to the dish, it makes it a little bit more sophisticated, brings the flavors together as well. So this particular chili pepper we've been talking about, uh, which is the yellow chili pepper called aji amarillo in Peruvian Spanish, is one of the more prevalent chilies that we use. Uh, more than anything, so it turns the color, so the color of the chili is actually orange, but when you use it in the, in the dishes, it turns kind of the creams and it gives it a nice golden color, a nice yellow color. And it's more for aroma, it's a very aromatic chili. And it's a little bit spicy, but a very mild spice. So we don't use sweet, sweet chilies very much. They're usually spicy. And we have a whole range of, uh, you know, varying kind of intensity on those chili peppers. But it's more than anything to add that that next dimension. However, you have a, a very traditional dish like ceviche that uses the limo chili pepper, which is very spicy. And the locals say, you know, if the ceviche isn't spicy, it's not ceviche. So you definitely <laughs> have these these dishes that require that kind of that fire that, that comes in afterwards.
0: The ceviche is probably the best known dish to Americans that comes from Peruvian cuisine. It's made its way into the United States. What can we expect from a ceviche when we're in Lima? And what are some of the different variations on that dish? Because the way I understand it is everyone's got their own little spin on ceviche.
1: Yes, absolutely. So ceviche has absolutely become this breakout star flagship dish that is representative, almost an ambassador of Peruvian cuisine that you can find in all different menus abroad. I've seen it just like, as you were saying, uh, in, in restaurants that aren't even Peruvian restaurants, you'll find ceviches. So the history of ceviche, now there are different sources on this and kind of different stories. A little bit comes from a Spanish influence, but here in Peru, there is a civilization called Caral, which dates back 5,000 years, and they have actually found evidence of the indigenous populations using the fish and marinating it in um, banana passion fruit. So this is a citrus fruit. They would marinate the fish overnight and then eat it the next day. So this is kind of a the first. Um, the first time we've seen ceviche here in Peruvian history. So when you come to Lima, you have all the different variations that you've been talking about. So the classic ceviche is going to be just with lime juice. So the limes were introduced by the Spanish. So this is fairly modern, right? Um, So your classic ceviche is with lime juice. But the base of any good ceviche is the tiger's milk. So the tiger's milk, and it's called tiger's milk because it is an aphrodisiac. Okay. So it has, um, every restaurant has their own special recipe, and many of them do not give out this information because this is the base of their dish. So it, it generally has some kind of cilantro, chili pepper, a little bit of ginger. Sometimes they will use some mayonnaise to kind of even out the flavors and bring them together and give it a creamier consistency. So the tiger's milk is really where the secret of the dish is. But in in different restaurants, you can find kind of that Nikkei Japanese fusion. So in Peru, uh, we have very good tuna. So you will find a tuna ceviche, which um, uses a little bit of soy sauce, some sesame oil, um, avocado, which you wouldn't find in your traditional, your classic Peruvian ceviche. So that's, that's kind of one of the variations going through the Nikkei cuisine, um, whereas your classic ceviche would generally use sea bass or flounder. It's recommended that you use a delicate white fish so that the citric acid of the lime juice can really cook the fish because it's, it's cooked, it's not actually raw, it's cooked by the citric acid. And if you have those kind of uh, oil, more oily fishes like a tuna or a salmon, it's going to be more like a tartare, right? Apart from the ceviches, you can have them made. Another way people like to prepare them in different restaurants are using different types of chili peppers. So we were talking about all of the varieties. Some of them are a little bit more floral or a little bit more, um, a little fruity in their flavor. So it's going to change that aromatic effect that brings the dish together as well. So we'll find that in the different ceviches. Uh, you can also find fried ceviche, so the fish or sometimes uh, squid. The calamari has been fried and included in the ceviche. Or you have a completely different dish, but it would be kind of a the refined cousin of the ceviche, which is a dish called tiradito. So, one of the main differences is that in the ceviche, your fish is cut into cubes, and in the tiradito, it's really a fish carpaccio. So, it's a very delicate cut, and they believe that this dish was really refined and kind of came into its glory with the arrival of the Japanese that brought these very sophisticated cooking techniques and obviously have thousands of years of experience cooking with seafood, sure. obviously, no? So you have this tiradito dish, so this fish carpaccio. The classic one is with just lime juice. Um, but one of the most common tiradito dishes is this fish carpaccio, again, served with the yellow chili sauce and some um, cilantro as well. And It's usually uh, accompanied with some boiled corn there to kind of, again, look for this balance in textures and flavors with the dish. So the tiradito is, is a little bit off the radar, um, but it is a delicious option that is very true to the ingredients and kind of the history here in Peru.
0: Sam, where's your favorite place to get ceviche?
1: Oh, my favorite there, and this has been my favorite for the last, I think, eight years at least. It's a place called El Mercado. It is a ceviche restaurant kind of on the other side of Miraflores. It's Miraflores is one of these 43 districts. It's kind of the, the tourist center where you have a lot of the commercial activity Uh, Based, But if you go on the other side of the district, you're going to find a lot of uh, mechanic shops, actually. You'll find mechanic shops that are peppered throughout, and you'll find right next to them these very fancy, higher-end ceviche restaurants. So you'll find this mix on the side of the city, which is really interesting as well. So El Mercado, for me, serves amazing seafood they tiradito they have the tiradito the fish or the dish we were just talking about made with silverside so it's a fish closely related to the sardine but just excellently executed and their star dish here which i've tried i mean if you're an octopus lover which i wasn't really to be honest until i tried it there Hands down the best octopus I've ever had. It is marinated and it's grilled and served with cherry tomatoes, mushrooms, capers, and a black olive reduction. So it is just, again, out of this world. It's very smoky, very flavorful. And their Nike ceviche is also one of my favorites. So it's a tuna-based ceviche with some soy sauce and served with tempura.
0: Lima, Peru has become this foodie mecca with all of these high-end, well-rated restaurants. It's amazing to me when you look up the best restaurants in South America, the best restaurants in the world, you'll see a bunch of them from Lima, Peru. Why do you think all of these restaurants now have clustered in Lima? Sure, it's a big metropolitan area, but there's large metropolitan areas that don't have this many highly rated restaurants in them. What is it about Lima that has this culinary renaissance going on.
1: So, without a doubt, the you have a culinary influence that dates back thousands of years from Andean cuisine, you have dishes from the jungle appearing that are just almost now being discovered and integrated into menus here in Lima, and then you have that coastal influence where you've had civilizations inhabiting the coast for at least 5000 years that we've been able to see. So, first of all, you have this really rich culinary history here. But on another side, you have these ambassadors, these culinary ambassadors that are chefs that really saw the vision and the value of the biodiversity that we have in Peru. So you have something like 100 over 100 110 different microclimates all around the world and Peru has over 80 of those. Oh, so wow. that just speaks just to the diversity that we have here in terms of ingredients, altitudes, origins. It's really incredible and these kind of micro crops as well that allow for more diversity and more variety within the same as opposed to like a monocrop, right? So because of this kind of richness, this is also one of the factors. But we have these chefs, these ambassadors, like um, the chef Gaston Acurio, which has been named one of the top 10 most influential chefs that saw that there was just this void internationally uh, for Peruvian cuisine. And this started about 25 to 30 years ago. And Peruvian cuisine wasn't known at all abroad. So what he really decided to do was position it as a high-end option and as an experience so as opposed to say Mexican cuisine that was almost taken over by really Americans and transformed not not through Mexico but now Tex-Mex, Tex-Mex is al- yeah. almost exactly more prevalent and people associate Mexican cuisine many times with Tex-Mex so this has kind of changed the brand of that cuisine whereas Peru didn't have one so when Gaston started opening opening his uh, restaurants abroad, he would pick the most exclusive parts of town and really aim to position Peruvian cuisine within this void as a high-end option, just because of the biodiversity. He's a classically trained chef at, at the Cordon Bleu in France, in Paris. Um, so bringing these two fusions together with a local biodiversity and, and ingredients and these sophisticated cooking techniques. And this is how he started to introduce Peruvian cuisine to the world. So this really opened up the door to other chefs and his contemporaries, as well as younger generations, to really pursue that route and recognize the value of what we have here in Peru. And this, in turn, sparked this national pride around cuisine. So one of the most studied degrees now in Peru is actually to be a chef. Whereas twenty years ago, the economy was in such a state the concept of a chef here didn't even exist. There were cooks. They were not that literally just, you know, worked to put the food on the table. They were not chefs. So this has evolved tremendously. We have um, the cooking school, the Cordon Bleu, which is here in, in Miraflores in Lima, which is the only one in South America. You have more cooking schools per capita than any other big city in the world. So it's become a source of national pride that started to unite all different socioeconomic segments, different cultural segments of the country and bring everyone together around the food. So when you have this such a a united domestic front to export their flavors and tell the story of their country through the dishes, then, you know, the power in numbers is really incredible. And so they really helped to follow Gaston and, and, and several other colleagues of his and different chefs that have really made way, like Pedro Miguel Gafino is also very, has been um, instrumental in introducing Amazon, Amazonian cuisine to the world. He just won the American Express Icon Award this year um, for the work he's done in that, in that sector and kind of bringing in industry in a sustainable way into areas that really didn't have a lot of economic activity. So through the cuisine, it has developed into this very sophisticated experience because of a lot of the pride and the diversity associated with it and a conscious positioning of the cuisine abroad, which has always been to kind of bet for that high-end experience and these exclusive, very delicate ingredients. So that's kind of what we're looking at now. And that's how these this trend kind of began and has really flourished.
0: We're talking to Samantha Lewis, her and her husband operate the Lima Gourmet Company they offer tours, food tours, and cooking classes in the culinary capital of Lima, Peru. Sam, you talked about Amazon cuisine, and I think this is something that is so interesting because I have no concept of what Amazon cuisine could possibly be. Can you talk about that a little bit?
1: Yes, and it's very interesting that you make this point, Brent, because even people from Lima, from the capital, are not familiar with cuisine from the Amazon. I mean, have no idea. It's only just beginning, So Peru is a country of about 33 million people. And in Lima, we have between 10 and 11 million. So nearly a third of the country's population. And in Lima, I mean, Amazonian cuisine, even just a few years ago is unheard of. So you have this chef that I mentioned, Pedro Miguel Schiaffino. He opened a restaurant called Amas. He has another restaurant that's been several times on the top 50 restaurants in the world called Malabar. And from there, he opened up through Amas to really focus on the work he was doing in the Amazon. So, um, there are several different kind of characteristics here of, of this kind of cuisine. It's got a very smoky flavor and a lot of that can be attributed to the cooking methods, right? With wood being in the jungle, there was, uh, an abundance of wood available, and this is how many of the dishes are cooked. So you have this nice smoky flavor. Uh, you have a lot of the citrus flavors coming through. Um, most of the biodiversity we do have in Peru is from the jungle, which actually occupies almost two-thirds of the country's territory. So you have this fruit called cocona, which is a nightshade. So it's a, it's a citrus fruit kind of similar to, uh, you know, obviously related to the tomatoes, you know, eggplant family. Um, And they use it a lot for different sauces. So they'll kind of cut it up, make it into a sauce, and then use it to contrast with other kind of smoky flavors with cecina, for example, which is a dehydrated and smoked dried pork. All right. So they will combine this smoky, dried, salty, savory pork flavor with this fresh citrusy coconut flavor. So you'll find this kind of juxtaposition of, of... Uh, experiences for your palate when you're eating some dishes from the Amazon. Plantains are also heavily used. Uh, On one of our tours, we actually even make a plantain ceviche, which is great for vegetarians and vegans. Yeah. So it's, and people are usually like, okay, ceviche with bananas, what are you talking about? But it's, it's really an incredible kind of texture and flavor that it adds to the dish. Uh, you have paiche, so getting into the jungle, you're obviously removed from the coast, and all the seafood that we have in the, is so prevalent in, in cuisine from the coast of Peru. You go into the jungle, and you have these freshwater fish from the Amazon. So you have a fish called paiche, which is one of the largest freshwater fish in the world. It can reach up to nine feet, and so you have many of these fish dishes and shrimp dishes that are kind of wrapped up in banana leaves and then smoked and slow-cooked, so you have this really smoky flavor, citrusy flavor. You have a lot of earthy influence as well. So this is kind of what we're, what we're looking at. And this is just, like I said, just the beginning. I mean, there are several, I know Pedro Miguel and his team and many other kind of researchers head to the Amazon frequently, um, just looking for new ingredients and new possibilities, right? It's much more than just one of the lungs of the earth, but everything that it has to really provide is remarkable. And we are just now getting into it, but in a sustainable way, that's The great part about it, that tourism is still growing pretty um, slowly, steadily, but slowly. Peru receives about four and a half million tourists a year, and that's up from about two and a half million about eight or nine years ago. So by growing this slowly, as opposed to like 40 million people in Spain or 20 million people in other destinations, we can control how we want tourism to look, how we want the cuisine to look, you know, and make sure that we're doing it in a way that doesn't harm local communities, in a way that doesn't harm kind of local ingredients and the crops and the agricultural side of things. So this is kind of what we're looking at as the Amazon really takes the stage here.
0: I love how you mentioned the plantain ceviche. Um, <laughs> I, it, made yeah, me think, yes. it made me think of when we were in Hawaii and they had a vegan poke made with Ugh. tofu that really wasn't very good. Unfortunately. (laughs) But I listened to this and I'm like, that would be something that would be great for a vegetarian person. What other vegetarian dishes could we expect if we came to Lima and had a tour with the Lima Gourmet Company?
1: Sure. Absolutely. That's something that's, again, is, so Lima has been declared the top culinary destination seven years in a row. So just by that, now you have people that are traveling to Peru. Obviously, Machu Picchu has always been a draw. More people are wanting to go to the Amazon, Lake Tiricaca, Puno. But people are traveling here just to eat, just for a weekend. So it's spectacular. So that pushes the restaurants to be much more conscious and much more aware about the needs of clients. Now you have all kinds of, you have vegetarians, vegans, uh, gluten-free, you have just a, a wider variety of kind of needs coming from customers. And so the restaurants are catering to that, which is brilliant. So that um, the sirloin steak dish I mentioned before, the lomo saltado, which is cooked over a wok. You can find this dish now made with mushrooms. And so mm. it's just hearty, flavorful, smoked. You get the soy sauce. It absorbs the Earthy other flavors in the dish. Great. Yes, absolutely. And just absorbs all of the flavors together. So you can find a lot of the mushroom-based dishes um, with plantains as well. Um, you can find, I mean, we have a, quite a a variety of peppers so they do a lot of stuffed pepper dishes for celiacs for example quinoa quinoa is one of these pseudo grains that has exploded you know all over you know globally but it is native to Peru and Bolivia okay. and that just yeah the evolution of quinoa is kind of uh, interesting the fact that before I mean it was really just food for chickens before it was kind of discovered <laughs> as this pseudo grain and you know no self-respecting limeño would be caught dead in, in quinoa and now you can find it at the, at the top restaurants all over the city, even in desserts. These immaculately produced popped quinoa, and quinoa crisps. I mean, it's it's pretty spectacular how this has all evolved.
0: You mentioned Sam uh, Machu Picchu, and I guess we can't talk about Peru without mentioning uh, Machu Picchu, Lake Titicaca, and all that. And I think what Americans need to understand is that if you go to Lima you're not going to do a day trip to Machu Picchu. Yeah. It's on the yes. other side of the country. You've got to really yes. fly to get there. Um, yes. But if someone were going, were coming to Peru and they were going to make Lima uh, part of their vacation and then they were going to Machu Picchu, what would be your advice to them?
1: Well, the planning stage is crucial because we have seen this, that a lot of people – initially start the trip, they're looking at it, and they they come into Lima, and they think they're going to do a day in Machu Picchu, and you're all set, and then maybe the jungle, and kind of hit it all up. And while it's not a huge country, uh, the distances, I mean, it's not somewhere you can just drive. We're talking about driving through the Andes, you have to catch a flight, and the altitude is a major factor. So here, um, Lima is a coastal town. We are sitting atop cliffs that are about 300 feet, 100 meters tall right here on the sea. But when you go to Cusco, the altitude is is an issue. So people need to acclimate before they start the hike to Machu Picchu, which is actually lower than Cusco. So now, and we have only seen this in the last few years, people used to fly to Lima, from Lima to Cusco, It's recommended you take at least the first day to acclimate to the altitude. The second full day you will need to do to Machu Picchu because you have to make it there and then make it back. So this is a full day experience. And then the third day you would come back or leave from Cusco to head wherever your next destination would be. But um, to avoid that kind of acclimation and make sure people feel a little bit better and and really make better use of the time, people are going directly, they'll fly into Cusco and then go directly down to the Sacred Valley and spend some time there before heading to Machu Picchu. By the time they get to Cusco, then on the second or third day, they're already used to kind of the oxygen, the altitude, the fresh air, and the heights of the the Andes. So we we would actually recommend that route, kind of doing it backwards from the classical routes, so Lima, then to the Sacred Valley, and then to Cusco. And then from there, um, you're just a hop, skip, and a jump away from the Amazon. And this is kind of a trip that people only make... Maybe once or maybe twice in their lives as a destination. So we would recommend definitely heading to the jungle. You have these great Amazon river cruises now. You have these uh, beautiful eco lodges that have canopy walks. So... It really has something for everyone. Adventure tourism, whitewater rafting, wine tours. I mean, you can really run the gamut in terms of experiences here, but definitely make sure you have enough time. So Peru is a destination that, uh, depending on where you're coming from, I, I you would want to give it at least a week.
0: At least. Sam, uh, we were talking, a lot of these restaurants we were talking about, you talked about elevated Peruvian cuisine, elevated cuisine in Lima. But one of my favorite things to do is find these little hole-in-the-wall places. I I think of uh, when we were in New Zealand in January – Um, finding a place that a bartender recommended to us that wasn't in any guidebook. You couldn't find it anywhere. You had to know how to get there. What are some of the -the hole-in-the-wall places that we could uh, go and visit when we were in Lima?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So there is, this one's a little bit, I'm going to give you two options on this one. So sandwiches are a big part of culture here. So when I'm talking about sandwiches, there's the chicharron, which is your fried pork belly served with a Creole sauce. So it's going to be red onion, uh, raw red onion, some lime juice, um, some people use parsley, some people use um, cilantro or even mint, and then some limo, some very spicy chili pepper. So this kind of sandwich is served on some French bread or a butifarra, which is a Peruvian country ham that's been marinated in different spices and then baked, also served with the same kind of creole sauce. So one of the most famous kind of emblematic places in the city is called La Lucha, which has a pretty wide variety of these sandwiches. There's um, a couple located in the Miraflores area that they just opened a new one, but it started out as this really small classic place kind of in the back of an alley where you would have – um, just a pedestrian walkway and little chessboards sitting out throughout all, all throughout this walkway, so you could just kind of walk around the Mir- Miraflores Central Park and then pass through the alley to get your sandwich. So La Lucha is a great option. There's another one in, in Barranco, which is kind of this artsy Bohemian side of the city that hardly anyone knows. I mean, I we live in this area, so we go here all the time. It's called Cafe Alicia. Okay, it's just this really small hole in the wall. The only people you're going to find there are really older um, Peruvians that live in the neighborhood as well. You'll see the senoras getting together for their coffee in the morning here, sitting down to read the paper. And they serve the most incredible butifarra, which is this country ham sandwich with this Creole sauce, which is just out of this world. And that will not be in any guidebook, but it is definitely worth the visit there. So
0: you talked about the locals hanging at the sandwich shop. Would this be a place where you could go and maybe uh, strike up a conversation with a local? and Or how else would you do that? Would you meet a local and maybe uh, talk to them about their city?
1: Yeah, you know, Peruvians are very, very friendly and they are just over the moon that the country has garnered so much international spotlight, especially for the food, because this goes back to the national pride factor that we were kind of discussing earlier. So even before you start to plan your trip, if you know any Peruvians at home and you say, hey, what should I do? What should I make sure to include? Nowadays, before telling you Machu Picchu or the Amazon or, you know, the these these mummies that they have in the north of Peru, they're going to start talking about the food. All right. These are the places you have to go. These are the dishes you have to try. This is my favorite bartender. This is the kind of information you're going to get. So if you go to any of the local restaurants and just, you know, they can even overhear you many times. This has even happened to us, you know, even if you're speaking English or you're traveling. They will jump in and come right to the table and say, Well, how do you like it? What did you think? Can may I recommend this is how you eat it? This is the correct temperature. Now try this and this in the same bite. So, food is something that is uniting people at the same table just across the board so walk into any of these places and anyone will just be delighted and if they don't you know if there's a language barrier don't worry food completely (laughs) crosses that anyone can communicate through food right yes so absolutely that would be the best way restaurants just walking around they'll be more than happy to give their recommendations
0: you know it reminds me again of being in new zealand in january as an american going down there the kiwis were so surprised to See us traveling mm. so far to go to New Zealand and not Australia that they were oh. always curious, asking us questions, you know, striking up conversation. So it sounds oh. like it's kind of the same type of thing happening in Lima with uh, folks coming from uh, United States or other other places.
1: Exactly, and as it really hasn't been on this kind of you know under this international spotlight for so long, you, it's not really a mass tourism destination yet. So you don't get kind of this worn out, this kind of tourist fatigue that some some destinations end up experiencing just because it really hasn't uh, maybe been appropriately kind of prepared for that much tourism or it's just exploded really quickly. So you don't have that here.
0: Or the town's too small to handle this huge influx.
1: Exactly. And then you have all these tourist shops kind of you know, starting to pop up, you know, with prices that are three, four times what they should be, you're not really going to find that here. Of course, just like any big city, right? You can find those centers, but it is not, uh, it's not the norm. It's not the majority yet. And so I am very optimistic about the way tourism is, is growing here in that sense. So no, people are, are just, are really happy to receive visitors and that, When they see that visitors are so happy with their experience, it just makes it all worth it. They just get even more excited. And the government, to their credit, has done a great job running national campaigns about how everyone can be an ambassador to the country. When a visitor comes and they see how you react and how they are received – then they're going to go back home and tell their family and tell their friends. And that just means more people will be finding out what a fantastic destination is. So it's been a great way to kind of groom the local population about what what is to come and what can be expected and what are the advantages of, of receiving visitors and sharing their culture.
0: When we lived in Austin, Texas, uh, me and my mm. girlfriend, we had a, a friend of ours, uh, Maddie, and her mom, Rose, they used to make this drink. They were from Peru. They used to make this mm-hmm. drink called uh, chicha morada.
1: Um, yes.
0: And I had never had it before, but man, that is that is good. And they made a non-alcoholic version of it. But, yes. you know, I would, I would take some home and uh, I like to add a little vodka to it. And I'm sure that's yeah. not traditional at all, but that's what I used to do. Talk about chicha morada and what it is. And how we can experience it in Lima.
1: Yes, that great again. So corn, actually, one of these uh, is one of these ingredients that's indigenous to Peru. There are over 27 different varieties that are being cultivated at the moment. Um, And chicha is something that has, has historically always been a part, you know, for thousands of years, really, of the culture, especially in the Andes. So you have two types of chicha. You have the chicha morada, so morada being purple, which comes from the purple corn. So the purple corn itself, which is a superfood and has great antioxidant values, you know, now that is are kind of making their way around.
0: Yeah, I killed all the superfoods with the vodka, Sam.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was out. <laughs> well you're sterilized. You're good to go. Um, so, yes, the purple corn drink... Um, Is going to be generally the purple corn drink is non alcoholic, and you can find that in Lima. You don't have to be in the Andes for that. This is kind of the non alcoholic that is preferred. If Pisco Sour is the most ordered alcoholic drink, Chicha Morada is going to be the most ordered non alcoholic drink here in. uh, in Lima, so it would be kind of, or in Peru, really, it's kind of the equivalent in the south of the United States to like a sweet tea. So that's what people are are ordering, right? It's a very sweet, sweet drink, very flavorful, has a lot of sugar, uh, pineapple juice, the cloves. So you have again very aromatic. You have a lot of yes. ingredients coming together for very intense flavor. And then you have in the Andes traditionally chicha would be a fermented corn drink, so like a corn beer. So when you have these ceremonies traditionally, like the Pachamanca, which is where they um, dig a large hole in the ground, place some very hot stones, and you place a blanket over it, and very traditional ingredients like potatoes, corn, chili peppers, sweet potato, cassava, um, sometimes some kind of meat and different herbs, then you'll cover it with the stones again. And then cover it with uh, the earth, the loose earth, and then you let it cook for two to three, depending on what you're a couple of hours depending on what your ingredients are. So during the ceremony, when they would take out the food, they would do an offering to the Pachamama, so the Earth Mother, to thank her for, in and the Andean Cosmo vision, you know, at the end, at harvest season for all of the abundance. Um, this chicha, this fermented corn drink, was always kind of played a part in that. And they would always give a drink, kind of an offering back to Mother Earth showing their gratitude for the abundance of the harvest that year. So this is kind of a staple in the Andean, even Cosmovision, and in a lot of ceremonial um, rituals that you're going to find in the Andes. So it's it's huge. It's a big thing. <laughs> so chicha morada or the or the chicha. yeah. Oh, like you I gotta, can definitely try, try both.
0: I got to try that chicha at some point. That sounds fantastic. Yes. What about yeah. the pisco sour, Sam? We have this in America. A lot of people know about it. But talk about the traditional pisco sour and what's in it. How it's made?
1: Yeah, sure. So great. So Pisco is going to be uh, a distilled. It's it's a liquor that comes from distilled grapes. So grapes are also not indigenous to the region, but they were brought with the Spaniards r- right right around their arrival in the mid 16th century, towards the end of the 16th mid about 1580 or so. And uh, you actually have the first vineyard in the Amer in South America that's here in Peru, just a little bit south of Lima, and in an area um, just a little bit south of Lima. And at this time in Spain is a very traditional uh, wine exporter. And they saw that the grapes did really well here and were producing a really nice wine. But this is going to be a threat because it's going to cut into their exports. So they made it illegal for Peru to (sighs) export wine. So this is how Peru becomes a country that, that a very low domestic wine consumption. But the Spaniards introduced distilling the distillation process of the grape to make pisco. So this is how, this is actually the birth of pisco, right? So um, pisco here in Peru, we don't use the head or the tail. It goes through this distillation process. We throw that away and we just use the body. It's a spirit that is um, about, uh, on average, 42 to 43% alcohol. So about 84 proof. It's quite a a strong spirit. And then you can really divide pisco into two categories. You have your aromatic piscos and your non-aromatic piscos. So your aromatic piscos are going to be used as a digestif, or an aperitif, before or after meals, just kind of help with aiding your digestion after a big meal. That's how a lot of people drink it here. And you can get all of the characteristics from the grape itself because pisco is not aged in, in wooden barrels or sort anything. Of They're in stainless steel vats. So all of the qualities that you get are actually, it's coming from the grapes themselves. To give you an idea of how strong this is, we've already talked about the alcohol content. But your classic Pisco Sour has three ounces or three shots of Pisco in one cocktail. So it's a Ready to go for the time. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Roll. That will start the night. Yep. You have your three ounces of Pisco, one ounce of lime juice, uh, one ounce of simple syrup or your kind of condensed sugar water, and one egg white. You shake it up and uh, you just top it off with a couple drops of bitters and you are good to go. <laughs> that
0: Pisco, I should have known that it was distilled uh, grape. And I didn't realize that. It reminds me of like being in Italy for some grappa or
1: some racchia
0: in in the Balkans.
1: Right. Yes. And that's actually what a lot of uh, guests. So during one of our tours, we kind of do a Pisco tasting, explanation of the class, how it's produced. And then you make your own Pisco sours. And what a lot of people have definitely pointed out is that it's a. Similar, similar to to like a grappa. yeah, the, exactly, spot on.
0: So the patron saint of Lima is Saint Rose of Lima, and mm-hmm. one thing that I like to do, especially when I'm in Italy, when I'm in Sicily, is look up where when the festivals are for the patron saints, because every town has their own patron saint, and always there's a, a celebration of fest and a specific food. Related to that patron saints festival, so my question to you is, Sam, is there a festival around uh, Saint Rose of Lima, and if so, what is it like?
1: Sure. So, Saint yes, yeah, Saint Rose of Lima is the patron saint of Lima, and if you go down to the center of Lima, especially at the time, so it's at the end of August, I believe, it's the thirtieth of August. Um, It's a national holiday, and you will have these processions, kind of like you would see in the south of Spain, but not quite so somber, let's say, like the one in Seville or something like that. (laughs) They're they're a lot more somber, and it's a lot serious. It's it's very serious now, and when everyone's sitting out there, you can almost hear a pin drop at, at certain points of the procession. Here, they're a little bit more Festive, But still, it's a it's a moment for, you know, pilgrims to come and to pilgrimage to the saints for the miracles performed or whatever they've done in their life. Right. So this goes on in August and you have two places uh, specifically in the center of Lima where you can find relics from St. Rose um, and different kind of artifacts from her life. However, in October, you have another saint that's been very important in the culture of Lima, which is the Lord of Miracles, so this has a very big brethren, and big brotherhood. And during this month of October, there are many, many people in Lima who are dressed in this, the color of the patron saint of this brotherhood, which is this deep purple color. So you'll see um, all kinds of people that are wearing the traditional kind of tunics that are purple for the entire month. And one of the most emblematic dishes that comes out of October is a sweet it's a type of turron, all right? Turron de Doña Pepa is what it's called. So it is this kind of anise-flavored pastry that has the little colored kind of confectionery balls on the top made with um, a type of honey or molasses as well. It's very, very sweet, and it's linked to this tale that there was a woman who was a follower of the Lord of Miracles and she cooked a lot. That was kind of what she was dedicated to. She was a, I believe she was a slave actually and so her duty was to cook and she started having all of these uh, health troubles and couldn't really walk and her legs were aching and so she wasn't really able to perform her tasks anymore and so she made a deal with the Lord of Miracles saying that if he cured her then she would make the most amazing Dessert that was ever tasted. (laughs) And as it went, she was cured. He showed up, did his job. She, in effect, could return to kind of her normal life at that time, but but not so normal because then she ended up fulfilling her promise. And as the legend goes, the streets of Lima were filled with a smell of honey you know, and sweets in her, her turron. So this is Lima's traditional dessert um, in October, which you can kind of get it throughout the year, but October is where you'll you'll really get the good stuff. So turron de Doña Pepa, Miss Peppa's.
0: Dessert. That sounds like a great time to go to Lima, Peru. And I love the story that goes with it, Sam, because so many of these stories are gruesome. You know, when you go to Italy, you hear these stories about saints getting their eyes gouged out and stuff like that. (laughs) Uh, This is a very nice story. So I like this one a lot. (laughs) Yeah. Um,
1: And had a happy ending. Yeah,
0: exactly. No no one got pulled apart by horses or anything. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) So... (laughs) <laughs> October, that would be springtime because you're in the southern hemisphere. You have the opposite seasons yes. as we do in the northern. When would you say is the best time to come and visit Lima?
1: Great. That's, yes, wonderful. So we always recommend because a lot of people, and it's completely worth it if you're going to come to Peru, most people are still combining that trip, not just with Lima, but with Machu Picchu. And so Lima and Cusco, while they're not exactly on opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of seasons, they do differ quite a bit. So when we are in summer here in Lima, so December through March, and it's kind of extending through April and even early May these days, Lima's really sunny. Uh, it's very dry. You got your blue skies. It's in the mid 80s to low 80s. However, it's the rainy season in Machu Picchu. So you won't in, in Cusco, you won't be able to go to the Andes and Machu Picchu. In some cases, they even uh, close it when the, when there's a lot of rain. So that is not recommendable. But it's the best time to be in Lima. And then when it's the best time to go to Cusco, so you have high season that stretches from about uh, May to August, September. Uh, You'll get the sunny blue skies and the gorgeous weather in Cusco, but it is just gray day after day and in the 60s in Lima. (laughs) So the best time you have these short little windows, which is right at the beginning and the end of high season. So the best time to come is, in my opinion, would be April, which is still low season, and you can get the warm weather in Lima, Gracias. Uh-huh. And then it's a little bit riskier, but you get mostly sun when you go to Cusco. You might get a rainy day or two that you wouldn't really get in June, let's say. But uh, I think it's a good trade off to be able to visit both places and make the, the most of it and kind of avoid the crowds as well. So in April or October, um, October it's still a little bit chilly in Lima, but towards the end of October it's starting to warm up already. Those would kind of be the best times to, to make the most of the trip.
0: So there you go. Make your plans now. Um, Samantha yeah. Lewis, it's been just a delight talking to you before we let you go tell us how if someone's coming to Lima how they can see you and make reservations for a food tour at the Lima Gourmet company
1: Brent it has also let me just say been a pleasure talking to you thanks so much for reaching out your questions I feel have been very relevant very poignant and have really allowed us to touch on some of the most interesting factors of what people can do when they come to Peru and just what the destination has to offer. Is really so much. So if you want to join us, uh, the company is called the Lima Gourmet Company. Lima Gourmet. Um, you can just look us up uh, on Google. All of our reservations are, you know, directly. Everything's automatic, uh, automated, instant confirmation. We have a team working around the clock to make sure that travelers are well looked after and like you're visiting friends in the city. You know that was always that's always been the idea behind what we do. My husband and I, we had to travel a lot for work, and we like to choose our destinations based on where our friends are at the moment. So we'll go and meet up with a local that kind of shows us around without making us feel like tourists. And so that's what we've decided that we wanted to give back to people. So just look us up. We're Lima Gourmet, and we would be happy to show people around and give them an idea of the city, history, culture, economics through the food.
0: Oh, thanks, Sam. Uh, We'll look forward to being in Lima, Peru real soon.
1: All right. We'd love to have you, Bryn. Come on
0: pisco sours, blue corn beer, world-renowned restaurants. If that doesn't make you want to drop everything and head to Lima, I don't know if I can help you. Thanks to Sam for making the time to talk with us today on Destination Eat Drink, and that's going to do it for this episode. Don't forget to check out the website DestinationEatDrink.com for more great destinations and foodie travel guides. Destination Eat Drink is distributed by Ed Silla and the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. I'm Brent Peterson, and I will see you down the road. Join us next week for another culinary adventure on Destination Eat Drink, a presentation of
1: the Radio Misfits Podcast Network.